Good morning, Sarah Hepla. Are you feeling are you feeling special today for some reason? I don't know. Maybe. Good morning, Nancy Rommelman. I always feel special, but I feel especially special today because it's International Women's Day. I feel like I should have like a little gong or something like I that. I think you do. I do. Okay. I have two dongs. <laughs> yeah, you do. And they're big. Yeah. Um, well, okay. Wait, before we get on my bazunkas, um, I have a gift for you. I have a gift for us. Okay. I have a gift for women. Okay. <laughs> okay. I bought it yesterday. Can you see it? It's pink and lavender, and it's got little flowers on it. It's a plant. Yes. It's a plant. It, it's Heather, although okay. for some reason this plant's name is called Erica. I don't know why. And it, as you can see, it was promoted at Whole Foods as a Women's Day bouquet. Because it, it's pink? No, because it's – I'll tell you why. There's a message on here. Okay. By the way, Heather, it looks like I, it caught my attention because it's little lavender buds that look like little bells. I, am, very, yeah. I think it's very pretty, don't you? Yeah, it's nice. Heather's nice. Okay. Here's the message I that this plant wants to share with us. Okay. Embrace equity, embrace diversity, and embrace inclusion. Embrace equity in all its forms. <laughs> Equality is the goal. Hashtag embrace equity. So this reminds me of when my daughter was in, I think, first grade. She made me a Mother's Day card that said, Happy Mother's Day. I love Daddy. When am I going to see Daddy? (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah. um, I I wonder if there's just like a kind of a alternate or accompanying message. It was subtle, though. It was subtle, I'm saying, for sure. Um, It said something about equity, it seems like. I thought about buying you tampons, but I figured you already had some. Yeah, I'm actually, I'm actually using one right now. I, I barely notice it. Um, wow, that was yeah. so unexpected. Yeah. This really is International Women's Day. It is, and, and you I feel know, like I should be using a tampon right now. I think that um, I think that you know, and I think we'll talk a little later after we talk with our guest. I'm gonna, we'll talk a little bit about my feelings about International Women's Day, but I will just give a little preview of that. It just sort of seems to me like going to a restaurant and it's like every single thing on the menu is celery. And by the time you get to the third option, you're like, I kind of just wanted to come and eat. I didn't want to have 600 choices of celery. And that's kind of how I feel about Women's Day. But we think we're going to get into that a little more later. What do you think, Sarah? Well, I think it might be called Internalized Misogyny Day for you. And that's fine. Yeah, I'm yes, I'm well known for this, apparently. Yeah, I I think it's a questionable thing whether or not half the world's population should really have a day of their own. Like, why don't we just have People Day? Like tomorrow, we can have International People Day. It's sort of like, do you like being called a woman's writer? Do you like that? I'm a woman writer. Do you do you dig that, Sarah? I don't dislike it the way that you dislike it. Yeah, I used I, to. I it used to really get under my skin in the '90s. I think because the '90s were a time when you know androgyny was really chic, and I really wanted to prove myself as a writer. Period. Um, and I really resented the idea of being a woman or female writer. But now I see it as a net gain. I mean, look, you know, I want to get some of that sweet DEI equity <laughs> bounce on my books. And, <laughs> you know, I'm very aware. You know, Vita tells me that, like, not a lot of women are uh, have cover stories, you know, wow. cover story bylines. So I'm just saying, Sarah Heppola, it it tracks I don't have one of those androgynous names. My friend Jamie Thompson wrote the cover story in New York Times Magazine that we talked about last week about cops. And I saw in the reader's comments, they were like, I really like this story. He's a great writer. And I was like, well, to be fair, Jamie is one of those names. You know? Yeah. I, Sarah's not. <clears throat> no, it's not. So um, can I, can I ask our guest what, what he feels about International Women's Day? I mean, well... First, you'd have to define women. That I don't is- know what we're talking. I don't really know what we're talking about. <laughs> point, you know. Um, I think we should introduce our guest. Our guest here today is Stephen clearly Elliott. Joe Rogan. Joe Rogan, my boyfriend. No, is uh, is Stephen Elliott, the writer and all around 
hustling, wonderful guy and a friend who's been on the podcast before. And I'm just happy to be on the podcast with Stephen at any time because he's entertaining and smart and is always doing new and interesting things. But last week, he did something I think was pretty seismic. And that was uh, he um, settled with what, what's it called? Settled with prejudice. What, what was the was the term of a uh, law? It's, it's just a settlement. You know, I don't. It was it got weird on online, but it's just a normal settlement, you know. So Stephen will go a little. He'll give a little backstory, but just quickly, um, Stephen um, sued the creator of the shitty media men list, Moira Donegan, um, which he was listed on, of course, an anonymous ap- accusation, which he knew to be false. And there were lots of people on that list, but Stephen was the only one that basically said, "You know what? I'm not taking this. I'm not rolling over for this." He took it to court. It was said to be an uphill battle because when the shitty media men, men list came out, and you know there were six thousand eight hundred and ninety-five stories written about it, mostly pro. Um, it was thought like, why is this dude going to take, you know, going to, going to take, how is this going to work out? Well, in fact, the case was, I guess, dismissed with prejudice, which is what, what is the term of law, which means it cannot be brought again. So Stephen, first of all, congratulations. Um, Mm -hmm. I saw a lot of people online that, that were happy for you. We're happy for this outcome. We're happy for some measure of due process. And if you want to take a few minutes and just explain to our listeners who might not know what happened from okay. you know beginning to end, and and let's let's listen. Sure. So first, um, a settlement. I just want to start with a settlement. A settlement of prejudice with prejudice. When when you make a settlement, usually you agree that you will not bring another lawsuit, and that's just a normal. And uh, part of it, uh, most settlements, and so because of that agreement in the settlement, that's what it means to be settled with prejudice. It means that you can't bring the lawsuit again. You've agreed, I'm not. You know, we're done here. I'm not going to sue you for this again. I can sue you for something else, but I won't sue you for this. Um, so yeah, so the uh, you know in uh, I guess 2017, you know, the shitty media men list came out, and it was kind of like a foundational document for the Me Too uh, era. Uh, it was really, you know, it was really an important document, you know, uh, at the time, you know, it was a very early uh, thing. And um, it was online for 12 hours, supposedly, and it was passed around, you know, it was sent to all the female editors and, and people that worked in uh, primarily uh, the literary circles, you know, so, uh, you might have gotten it at the New York Times, but you definitely got it if you were at the Paris Review. <laughs> you know? Oh, that's so interesting. So it's called the shitty media men list, but it's really a subset of – a very niche subset of media, which I mean, is the literary media. And I understand that you're not saying it's exclusively that, but that would explain why, for instance, I never saw it. Right. I mean that's where it started. You know, And obviously once it, st- once it goes out, people are forwarding it and so yes. forth. But, you know, Moira Donegan, uh, the person who created the list, was kind of like obsessed with the literary world. She wants mm. to be in the literary world. She, you know, in particular, uh, you know, hated the editor of the Paris Review because she couldn't believe that a man was editing the Paris Review and, and so forth. Who and was the editor of the Paris Review at the time? Uh, Do you remember? Lauren Stein. Lauren Stein. Lauren Stein. Yeah, so the media, the media men list took him out. You know, he was – he lost his position um, – which was a big point of the media list, you know, actually, because what most people don't know is that, you know, the shitty media men list comes out for 12 hours. She takes it down, but she continues to promote it. You know, she's retweeting people who are saying, hey, this thing is still live and everything on, on this list is true, you know, and so forth. So uh, and she doesn't take credit for it for two or three more months. You know, in January, she comes out with an with an with an article saying, you know, I'm the creator under the guise that she was forced to come out. But um, that also wasn't true. You know, she was definitely going to come out as a creator of the shitty media men list because she was pitching a book. Right. And the book, the name of the book was shitty media men. Yeah. It's not a lot of wiggle room in there for that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and so that was the thing. So anyway, um, I was named on this list, you know, it said multiple rape accusations. And, um, of course it could have been just one guy writing that, you know, it doesn't, that doesn't necessarily mean multiple accusations. It doesn't even mean it's a female, um, because anybody who had gotten that list in the 12 hours that was live could have put anything on the list. 
Um, but I had the benefit, I think, unlike just about everybody else that was on that list, of knowing that I absolutely had never raped anyone. And not only that, there was nobody out there who thought I raped them. Like, you know, because at the beginning of Me Too, there was kind of a hysteria going on. And people were remembering things that happened in a different way than they might have remembered it a little bit earlier. You know, it was very motivated reasoning, you know, because people were getting, <clears throat> people were getting ahead, you know, for making these accusations and so forth. And sometimes they were just taking out enemies who were stopping their advancement because, you know, you're looking, it's like a hit list circulating among the, the most ambitious people in the world. And they're fighting over scraps. There's very little there. So they're fighting really hard for it, you know, because um, nobody actually reads the Paris Review, right? I mean, so it's really, <laughs> you know, uh, it's really brutal. And um, I just so- want to stop you and say for a second, um, you know, it's not that I disagree with what you just said, but I, I also want to say that that sometimes there are multiple motivations for these things. Yeah, absolutely. Um, in other words, there could be harm done as well as an incentive to take someone out. That's that's 100% true. You know, the, I think the... I think that the Me Too movement started with really good motives. And also, I think that sexual assault and harassment is massively underreported. Mm-hmm. You know, it seems there's like this belief that you people seem to think you, you're either against false accusations or you believe that sexual harassment is a massive problem in the workplace. And it's like you can actually believe both of those things. Right. You know, Um, and one of the problems with the media list is, though, in theory, the point of it is to give women a voice and allow them to report on these things that have happened to them. In reality, it actually made people trust women less because the shitty media men list was a false accusation machine. You know, everything about it encouraged false accusations and everybody in the literary world who knew somebody on it or knew multiple people on it believed that they knew somebody who had been falsely accused. There was a lot of false accusations on the list. Or we should, we should just also add, besides that, that then people may know this already, that the people doing the accusations remained anonymous. So not right. only did we as the readers of the list not know who was making this accusation, but the people that had been accused had no way of knowing who was accusing them. Right. So, so that's the thing. You, you can't defend yourself because it's anonymous. You don't know when it happened. You don't know who's making the accusation. And so how can you prove that you didn't do this? But I had the situation where I don't actually like having penetrative sex with women. And so I knew that there was nobody out there, even if they were changing their memories, even if like they were completely whacked out of their mind, I knew there was nobody out there that believed I raped them because I hadn't had that kind of penetrative sex with a woman in an extremely long time. Can I ask you a question? Mm-hmm. Do you like penetrative sex with men? You know, I was, uh, you know, I was a sex worker in my, in my twenties and there's a lot of experimentation. Uh, more like I would often in a sexual situation, I would be the, in the feminine role, you know, I yeah. cross dress and the woman would be dominant and she might use a strap on. Like I dated, I, I had a multi-year relationship, very serious relationship dating a woman who I never saw naked. You know, we never had, she might, she saw me naked a lot. But that the kind of sex we had, I never penetrated her, you know, because I don't I don't like that. We should mention that you spent a lot of time in San Francisco. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. And uh, yeah. And, and just just so no. people don't know, because, you know, you're actually a, a very well-known person in the literary community and the media community. But but sometimes that's not as big of a world as we want to believe it is. People listening to this might not realize that you've actually written books about these subjects. This is this is probably one of the best known things about you, in addition to the fact that you started things like the Rumpus uh, Home to Dear Sugar, which, you know, sort of launched Cheryl Strait in certain ways. We can argue about that. Also, who's right. that now? Roxanne Gay. Yeah. What do you have to say for yourself about that? I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I actually, I, I've always really loved Roxanne Gay and I loved the stuff that you put in the rumpus. Uh, you ran some of her early fiction, which is some of my favorite stuff that she wrote, erotic fiction. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was a real fan of hers. Uh, I continue to like Roxanne Gay, except that I just think there are forces in the world that are aligned to put people on tracks that I think don't serve them and the people that read them. Yeah, I'd say that's true. 
but um yeah anyway you know yeah i think roxanne is a, is a fantastic writer you know even if i don't like her as a person but um anyway yeah the, i had this the point was that i had this advantage over other men on the list who might be worried that someone was going to come out that they didn't know about and say that they had raped them you know even if they thought that they'd never raped anybody at the time with the hysteria People were kind of people. A lot of men, in particular, were worried about being falsely accused of something. So even if they thought they were innocent, they wouldn't want to go out and like you know um, shake the trees. You know they didn't they didn't know it was going to come out. Whereas I knew. Uh, and again, you know, sexual assault and sexual harassment and misogyny is widespread in the literary community and um, and has been for a really long time. And, and in, you know, in, in all the workplaces in America. So it's not that it, it's not that there isn't a problem either. And, and, you know, a lot, there were people on the list, I'm sure, who were guilty as well. So it's not like the whole list is just yeah. full of innocent people, right? But you do want to presume innocence. And you do, it is more important that a, that a guilty man go free than an innocent man go to jail, right? I mean, that's, it's more, that's more important. You know, we don't want to, you don't want to have a situation where you're accusing innocent people and ruining their lives. I mean, just destroying people's lives. This, this list. I I agree with what you just said, but I'm not sure the current moment does. Yeah. Well, I can't help that. You know, that's like, that's not really my problem anymore. You know, I did, I did what I could do. Um, I did what people, what a lot of people don't understand about my lawsuit is that it was a moral quest. You know, like I filed the lawsuit for moral reasons. I felt I had a moral obligation to do so according to my beliefs. You know, uh, you know, I've always fought for prison reform quite, I have a, a long, uh, political life, history of political activism. This was not the first time I've been active. It's just the thing maybe more people know about me, but I, I can, I have a well-documented history of fighting for prison reform and so forth. And so, um, you know, presumption of innocence was always important to me and knowing that I was the person best suited to file this lawsuit and that I was not the only person falsely accused on this list, I really felt that I had an obligation to push back. It wasn't just about me, like, getting revenge on the person who put me on the list, who, frankly, I don't even care who put me on the list, you know. I was suing Moira Donegan. She was the person responsible for this thing, which was a, which was a bad thing, right? Like, a, a list, a media blacklist full of anonymous accusations is always an evil. It's always a bad thing. There's when no you- situation historically where that thing, which has happened over and over again, where that thing has been a good thing. It's never good. And so it was, um, you know, so it was, it was a moral imperative. I had, to, I, had to, I had to do this, you know. I didn't know – what I didn't know, I guess, was that they were going to fight so hard to keep it from getting to court. You know, I think, I think ultimately Moira and her lawyers knew they would lose if we got in front of a judge. And so the reason it took four and a half years to get to this point was they were trying every possible legal maneuver to stall. They were filing things like saying that the list was protected by, um, you know, uh, you know, the, two, the 230 ruling. Yeah. It, it yeah. wasn't. And they knew it was obviously not. Like anybody who sat with it for a minute. But, you know, that, that, t- that t- takes nine months to resolve, you know. And the whole time I'm saying let's just go to court. Let's just get in front of a third party. Right. And I will accept the judgment of this third party or the jury. You know, I won't, I won't, I won't appeal. I've, I've been wrong before. You know, we obviously disagree, Moira Donegan and I. Let's get in front of an impartial, you know, third person and accept uh, that person's uh, ruling. I actually think the American legal system is mostly a really good thing, but they didn't want that. They were, they were, the reason it went on so long is because they were fighting and she had really high priced, um, fancy lawyers and they had a lot of resources. And uh, her was, lawyer was working pro bono. Am I not, am I wrong? Yeah. Her lawyer is, was working pro bono. And uh, I think yours might be too. My lawyer was working on contingency. Got so it. basically the same thing. I wasn't paying for my lawyer, but you know, my lawyer didn't want to go on forever either. I don't think, I don't think her lawyers did either. I think, I think the lawyers were, were actually wanted us to settle because it, they both sides knew it was going to go for a long time. Um, Stephen, did anybody, um, when you were getting ready to do this, was there any, was there ever talk of anybody else that had been on the mm-hmm. list coming in with you? No, I don't, that would have just actually made it more complicated. It okay. wouldn't have helped. I don't think, Okay. you know, it wouldn't have been a good thing, uh, actually. But so, can I ask you a question about that very thing? You said that you knew there were other people on the list that were falsely accused. Mm-hmm. How did you know that? Well, start, 
with Occam's razor. <laughs> <laughs> right, 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 right. Just start there. Just imagine a list that you can just put anybody's name you want. And you know the literary community. You know what people who work in media are like. Imagine a list where you can anonymously just put the person you dislike the most. And maybe this person did do something to you. But maybe you're going to tweak it a little bit and make it a little bit worse than it was. Or you're going to just going to give your side of it, you know, and you can take this person out. And if you think that if you believe that false accusations ever happen, then certainly a list that that where people are motivated and being encouraged, you know, to put with no risk to yourself would be, you know, anonymous accusations would obviously be full of false accusations, not 100 percent. But obviously, there would be more false accusations than average. Or maybe not even false accusations, but amplified accusations. Both. <laughs> yeah. Both. Yeah. But the amplified accusations is a big deal because uh, what happened for a lot of people, you know, they had done something wrong. But the, the penalty for what they had done, their life was so completely destroyed. It was so disproportionate to, to their crimes if their crime had been amplified that way. You know, like – no matter what you feel about somebody, accusing them as rape, of rape is a major accusation. You know, you can't get – you're not going to get any work once you've been accused of rape. You know, I started getting uninvited from things. You know, I was, I was in, in Hollywood trying to sell a script and it was obvious that was over. You know, like even before I filed a lawsuit, there was – which, which, which really amplified everything by 10 because I got so much media attention. But even before that – Having this rape accusation, you know, that was so easy to find online. Uh, and Moira, of course, was always uh, behind the scenes promoting the list, no matter what she said to the contrary. Um, it was really negative thing. One more thing I want to point out is uh, I filed a lawsuit after a year. There was a, a statute of limitations. I had to mm. file the lawsuit or never file the lawsuit. Mm. So... The reality is, if it wasn't for the statute of limitations, I wouldn't have filed a lawsuit. I would have—I was still thinking about it, but I couldn't stand the idea of never being able to file the lawsuit. You know, and so initially, initially, I was filing the lawsuit just to give me myself three more months because that—that's what would have happened. I would have had three more months to really decide. You know, um, but the word got out about the lawsuit, and then you know, it was just we were going. There's a. There's many way, many moments in which this lawsuit didn't have to happen, actually. You know, mm. uh, another thing is like if Moira Donigan apologizes right away early on, you know, I tried to talk to her before I found the lawsuit. Yeah. Unsuccessful. And if I filed a lawsuit and she and she sincerely apologizes, you know, she realizes she did something wrong. She understands the harm caused, you know. I'm going to drop the lawsuit, you know, <laughs> I'm not going to like, I'm not trying, it's not about, you know, that's, that's not, I'm not punitive. You know, if you made a mistake and you recognize it and you apologize, we're fine. Instead, you know, you double down and we spend four and a half years on this thing. And now I'm not, you know, now you're either going to give me a, a lot of money, which is what happened, or we're going to go to court. You know, um, there was no, you know, we were long past the point. And, and, and actually in the negotiations, the thing that she was most was most important to her, she was, was insisting that she not apologize, you know. And I was clear from the from the from the get go. I didn't want an apology. I wouldn't believe it anyway. You know, after all this time. So what would be the point of, of an apology? What they wanted, and this is wild, is very Harvey uh, Weinstein of them. They wanted a non disclosure agreement. They didn't want me to talk about the lawsuit. Oh my goodness! You know, which I thought was like so ironic. And so I was, ironic. And I was, of course, not going to sign on to that at all. There's no meaning, way. Meaning they can be, they should, should have their anonymity and all their uh, bits and everything it, protected, it, but nobody else gets that. She was embarrassed by the settlement. You know, she's embarrassed that she paid, paid a lot of money. She, it, lo it looks like an admission of guilt. And, and, and the reason she settled was because the reality is she knew she would lose if it went, if it ever, if it ever did get in front of the jury, which it would have been five years away, the way that, the way they were playing their game. You know, but eventually she was going to lose, you know. Who do you think is going to pay out this money? Is, are there, is she going to have people behind her doing you know, it? No, Moira comes from a lot of money. You know, she, oh. has, she comes from a very rich family. I didn't you know. know I kind of, in a way, I think the settlement's a lot of money to me because I was a ward of the state. I was raised in group homes, yeah. you know, and she was raised in this rich family. And I don't think the money, the money might not be a lot to her, you know. Okay. It's a lot to me. You can't tell us how much it is, right? It's six figures. 
Wow. Okay. Um, I learned about this because there was a tweet on the Twitter machine that never lies. Mm. And it said <laughs> something, and I, I apologize, I don't remember who it was. It said, Stephen Elliott's case has been dismissed mm-hmm. in capital letters. I know. And it went on to say, it's, you know, been done with prejudice. There was a settlement here. Um, you know, it, it, it was almost like, the way that I read it was this case has been thrown out because it has no merit. Right, right. P.S. That's not true. They actually settled. Right, right. And I, I thought, what is this? What's going on here? Many people came into the comments and 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 corrected this, you know, um, you know, made clear that that this was not a very good rendering of what had happened. Um, do you must know this tweet and who is this person? Yeah, and yeah. I what? don't know this person. I did see the tweet, like, you know, because I wasn't saying anything. I was waiting for all the, you know, all the documents to be signed and whatever. So they found it when the, the document, the judge approved the settlement, and then it went onto the docket or something, and they were able to pull it, you know. And so this person broke the news. Um, so I don't know if they had an agenda. It's obviously like phrased in a really ridiculous way because, you know, it was not dismissed. When you think of dismissed, you think of a case without merit. And that's what what everybody that wrote about the case prior had said it was going to be dismissed. There's like right. 20 articles in New York Magazine insisting that this that this lawsuit is definitely going to be dismissed. And so it sounded like wish fulfillment where like a, a journalist was trying to, you know, re- really wanted it to be the case that it was dismissed and couldn't really accept that, no, this was a settlement in my favor. Um but, uh, you know, maybe also the guy just made a mistake. Sure. So, I, you know, it's uh, funny because I, re- I actually posted that, um, that tweet and I, I didn't read it that way. I read it that it had been – because I saw the with prejudice. I was like, oh, Stephen won. Like I could, mm-hmm. I, I could read it that way, but I could see definitely how someone would see the opposite. Like, oh, he got his he case thrown out. Yeah. capitalized dismissed and he yeah. didn't capitalize settlement. And I think that's why, you know, it was, yeah. you know – yeah, he should probably apologize or correct himself, but it's not that big of a deal. So let may I, Sarah? So let's talk a little bit uh, just about what the reactions, the personal reactions that you have gotten, because we know because we had you on the show before. We'll put a link to that episode. We talked before about you know obviously the hate that you received your your car being spray painted with rapist, and you lost your agent, I believe, and my agent, my editor, my publisher, all of a them. lot of friends, and it was you know it was a very is a very, very, very big deal. And, you know, you know that there are going to be a few people that come out and say, see, yeah, sure, the men never lose. Look, he gets all this money now. But I, my impression is that that side of the aisle, for lack of a better image, has been a little bit quiet since you've won. So what what, what have, have been the reactions that you've gotten since last you know, week? I mean, it's interesting. I mean, I haven't gotten money, many reactions yet, right? Because it's just, it's pretty new. And it's just, there's a lot of stuff coming out, I think. You know, I just, I just, I did a little interview with, um, I, or I gave some quotes to the Daily Beast, um, and some stuff is coming out, I think. But, um, you know, there's a couple of things. One, uh, you know, times have changed, and people, you know, would be embarrassed. I mean, it's embarrassing to support an anonymous list. You know, a, a blacklist full of anonymous accusations. That is such an obviously indefensible thing. But when there's a mob occurring, there's a certain like hysteria that takes hold. You know. And nobody remembers joining a mob. I can't tell you how many people mm-hmm. I've confronted who have zero memory of joining the mob against me. And I like go back into their Facebook page or their tweets and show and like, see here, you said this, you know, and they don't remember it. Like I'm, and I, and I sincerely believe this and it's happened enough that I'm convinced of it. People do not remember joining a mob, you know, so it's not like people are going to be like, Oh, I was wrong about that. They're going to be like, they're going to say, oh, I always supported Stephen. I was always against, I always thought wow. the media list was a bad idea. You know, they're not going to remember their actions. And the second thing is uh, you can't be canceled twice. You know, you actually have immunity mm-hmm. after the first time. Yep. There's, there's <laughs> nobody in my life right now who is going to turn against me. Um, of course, there's almost nobody in my life. I mean, I lost 95% of, of my friends and, and social network and the people I knew. Uh, so my life, the, the people I, you know, the people in my life that, significantly smaller group, you know, by a magnitude. Um, and, you know, you have to, you know, I, you have to accept that, but it's not like, 
I haven't, I'm going to face any social consequences anymore. Those, the social consequences have already been uh, bestowed. <laughs> there are no more. There are no more coming. You know, I'm not going to, my friends have stuck around. They're, they're, they're you know, yeah. they've been weeded out. I love the phrase, you can't be canceled twice. I think that should be name the name of like an essay that you write or a, mm-hmm. or a book. Um, you were very well connected in the San Francisco literary community. Um, I mentioned that you started The Rumpus, which is a very influential literary publication, if you don't know it. Um, I was working at Salon for many years, and The Rumpus kind of came up like a like a viper there in the in the culture. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was sort of like jealous of a lot of the stuff that you were doing and you weren't nearly as well funded as we mm-hmm. were. Salon is is, you know, funded by Google mm-hmm. uh millionaires. And uh, you know, I was really impressed with what you were doing. Um there were a lot of people for many years that touted their association with you. They were proud to be associated with you. Um I won't name those names because I will leave it up to you if you would like to. Um, but some of them are doing extremely well in their careers, uh, have gone on to great success. I wonder if you can talk about whether or not those people have either private, you know, privately come back into the, you know, like, I'm, I'm sorry that I did this or, uh, like, what's the status of where you, you know, you, you created a literary community that has essentially exiled you. Yeah. Is yeah. that fair to say? That, that's definitely fair to say. <laughs> um, you know, uh, for the most part, you know, uh, you're not going to get an apology. You know, the, the, you know, for a lot of people, the people that really came out that I really like, I really did so much like for Isaac Fitzgerald, for example, who like I kind of made his career and, um, and the way he turned on me was so vicious and unexpected. And he was like one of my closest friends. And it was just heartbreaking, you know, like that he would just the people that made public comments without calling me. And I was like, you know, say whatever you're going to say. But if you're a decent person, you call me first. And we like like there was like this guy, Matthew, Matthew Spector, this author. We were very close. And, you know, he, he tweets, um, you know, uh, you know, you had this lawsuit is a, you know, it's terrible and you have to drop this lawsuit you're doing violence towards women and i was like matthew you have my number you know like if you want me to drop the lawsuit what's going to be the most effective thing right you call me and you try to talk me out of it and we have a conversation you don't attack me online which just makes me dig my heels in more like it was obviously the least effective thing he could have done it was you know this kind of um you know uh virtue signaling and i confronted him you know, I kind of, for about a year, I got really depressed. I didn't talk to anybody and I just mm-hmm. stayed inside. But then I started getting angry and I started confronting people very, you know, forcefully, I guess you could say. And, um, and he was like, oh, I don't, I don't support the, I don't support the media list. I don't know what you're talking about. Like, he literally, he, you know, he had no memory. And so I showed him, you know, what he had written. And he's, he's like, well, I don't, I don't, you know, I don't believe that, I, you know. <laughs> and, 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 um, and, you know, and he says, well, and I said, well, you need to say that publicly then. I said, you, you, you attack me publicly. So if you apologize publicly, I'll accept it. It's fine. You know, and then he just actually, he deleted his Twitter account instead. So oh, <laughs> um, oh, I man. got a new one now, but, but you know, that's, that, that was my, but uh, there was one person who uh, said something kind of mean and I, and I can, and, and then, but then like made some nice comment on some other thing. And I was like, Hey, it's weird that you did this. You know, you said this when I was getting mobbed, but now you're acting like we're friends. You know, we've only like, met each other twice, you know, and, and at least one of those times I was wearing a pink latex dress. And so it's weird mm-hmm. that you're, you know what I mean? Like we're in a bar and I'm, mm-hmm. I'm in dress and heels and I'm like, I don't understand uh, where this came from. And she apologized and it was like, oh. uh, and it was, and I was, and I accepted the apology and it was great, you know, and, um, and there was, there was Rob Spillman from uh, Tin House Magazine, you know, who, uh, I confronted him at a party and he denied it and didn't, you know, had no memory of it. And then I, and then I, brought up, you know, his post on Facebook where he was raising money for Moria's GoFundMe. <gasps> and um, and he, he doubled down for a minute, but I was like, Dude. you know, I, I pushed back and he, and he apologized and he said, uh, you know, you're right. I should have called you, you know. Because yeah. among the points is like, you never made it, you, you, you knew I was being falsely accused. Nobody, nobody believes I raped, nobody, nobody knows me actually thinks I raped anybody. So you really, you didn't think I, but you never made a public statement about that. You know, but you wait. But when I filed the lawsuit, you made a public statement against the lawsuit. So, you know, if you had made a public statement saying, 
this list is wrong. You can't do this. If enough people had done that, the lawsuit wouldn't have been necessary. You know? But the problem. We're all quiet, you know? The problem is. And he apologized, is what I'm saying. And I accept it. I'm glad that Rob Spillman did apologize, and I, I think I've met him once or twice because Tin House is based in Portland. But the problem with, let's say, a we'll just use Rob as an example in Tin House, this is like there is no more little sweet spot in the literary world or the MFA world than, let's say, Tin House, right? Mm-hmm. And though that – Sarah and I have talked about this, the sort of – you were talking about you're, you're fighting over scraps and you're fighting over this like – it's like a dirty fishbowl. And the pressure, I imagine – that Rob Spillman was getting from, you know, 100 or 1,000 voices within that world that have any status must have been deafening, just deafening. Like, you've got to make a stand. You specifically, Rob Spillman, who have this, like, you know, this, you're this big fish in this tiny little pond. You've got to make a statement. And it's just like, well, okay, I'm going to do it. Mm -hmm. And then, I mean, I'm glad that he, I'm glad he kind of, you know, showed up at, you know, later 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 in the day but he got browbeat into it you know he apologized and he said um i don't think you raped anybody you know you know and um you know and he mentioned that he knew somebody else on the list that uh he also believed was falsely accused and i said you know i said why didn't you say anything and he said well i talked to them and they they asked me not to say anything and i and i said like well you never talked to me i don't remember you asking me if i wanted you to make a public statement Mm -hmm. so i was a little skeptical that that conversation had ever taken place you know like you asked him, but you didn't ask me. And you knew he knows multiple people who he believes to be falsely accused on that list, which is wild, right? Like my editor at Grey Wolf also put out a public, uh, you know, publicly defended the list. And he knew that I was falsely accused, but he had multiple other friends on that list that he also believed were falsely accused. And yet, you know, they convinced themselves because a, a human being can convince themselves of anything. Sure. You know, and they just convinced themselves that this was for the greater good. And that sure. even if there was some false accusation on the list, the list was ultimately, you know, correcting, uh, you know, a historic evil. You know, uh, I remember a piece in New York Magazine that came out uh, around this time that, you know, it, it interviewed some of the guys that were on the list. And, and oh, a few of them said, my yeah, favorite. a few of them said that they were falsely accused. No, no, but they were, All, of them, all, all of, them. of them said it. All of them said it. But but they didn't want to be named and they didn't want to stand in the way of whatever justice this and, and was or whatever. Moira, they supported Moira and they supported the Unreal. Lit, Unreal. And they, were, and they were against the lawsuit, but they were all falsely accused. Uh, Unreal. Yeah. But that was my favorite. That was actually the one article that came out that made me feel good. You know, like, yeah. when, like, cause I was in such a dark place, you know, I'd be attacked by all my friends and everything. And then I read that article and I thought, at least I'm not those guys. At least I'm you not know? those guys. <laughs> anything, anything was better than that. You know, I felt so sorry for those guys. And I just thought, that's what a massive human, like somebody knows who they are and how deeply humiliating, you know. And um, and I just, it was one of those moments, there's actually a couple moments like that. Like when, when, um, when they spray painted rapist on my car, you know, and also they spray painted scum on the front of my house. And, um, those were moments of like, they were painful, but they were also extremely validating. You're like, oh, I'm doing the right thing. I'm for sure 100% doing the right thing. And I know that now. Yeah. You know? And they're just going to try to continue to intimidate you into shutting yeah. up. And I do wonder, there have to be so many people. I mean, there are people that publicly, you know, came on when I congratulated you on your page, including Glenn Greenwald came on and liked that you had been like, that it yeah, been, yeah. and I, the people that are happy about it. Um, they're happy to see that we might be saying, turning a little bit of a corner, like, listen, we're not going to just lie down and, 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 and accept these, these accusations that are anonymous and et cetera. But I also think you really, as I opened this, this, this episode, you know, you really, you really stood up when other people didn't. And I have to imagine there are a lot of people that are kind of quietly cheering for you and that this happened. Like they, they didn't have the courage then to do it themselves or even to stand up for their friend or even for even to just listen to this and say, you know what, I don't think this is really right. Maybe I'll say something. But now it's like, wow, okay, cool, dude. Good. You know, honestly, still, it was a lot of damage. You know, it's not, I don't think I'll I'll never get over it. And it wasn't worth the money. You know, it was a lot of money for a guy like me, but it's not worth the money, you know, obviously. And I would much rather have had a trial. You know, I wanted to go in front of a judge, you know, and it was yeah. just so obviously it was going to take forever. So it's a little bittersweet. You know, it's a victory, 
you know, and it's good and, and it's good that to push back on, on false accusations. And then also when I filed the lawsuit, there were a lot of copycat lists like at University of Washington and on Instagram, and they all came down because of the lawsuit. So almost immediately when I filed, the lawsuit had a really positive effect, you know, of, of like saying, you know, be careful with the anonymous accusations. It made people think about that, you know. It's not, you know, they're not, they're not okay, actually. Stephen, when you filed this lawsuit, there was quite a bit of press about it. I, I read about it in the New York Times. Um, the lawsuit has been settled now. Uh, has there been press on this? Will there be press on this? Funny, like there was so much media. Well, so when, when, uh, when I filed the lawsuit, uh, Moira, you know, kind of had this like PR, uh, you know, team just ready to go. I mean, and they just like went to town and there was so many articles planted all over the place. Um, and now it's like, she's not doing that. Right. She's locked her Twitter account and she's, you know, she went, she doesn't want to talk about it. She wanted, you know, a non-disclosure agreement and so forth. Um, and all these, I think maybe, maybe, maybe some publications like Vox and New York magazine and so forth that were so supportive of this thing that really can't be defended. Like, you know, it's so indefensible that maybe they're, um, they don't really want to talk about it, you know, cause it, it is, it is definitely, uh, you know, I think it's going to kind of pick up slowly cause we kind of have to grapple with it eventually. Yeah. But, um, but, but it is, it is like, it is very, it is surprisingly quiet, you know, nobody's because there's so many articles about how it was just going to be dismissed and that, and the lawsuit had no merit. And now they're like, Oh, you know, we don't want to talk about this. Well, I, I think I'm going to try to write up a little something for reason. So we'll we'll start there. <laughs> now, one lawyer that did write something about it, Nancy brought my attention to this, was the lawyer Scott Greenfield, yeah. who has supported you vocally for some time. Scott is a fascinating figure. He's a New York criminal justice lawyer, and you know he's just not afraid is my mm-hmm. experience of him. I have spoken to him about the Brock Turner case, which is mm-hmm. a, a case that I've yeah. been following and very fascinated by. Scott has been very vocal uh, on Twitter about his, his, you know, uh, his belief that that is a very misunderstood case. He is correct about that. Um, do you know Scott? Uh, where, where did this come no, from? No, I don't know Scott. Um, but, you know, he has always been super supportive. I mean, I think there's like a number of lawyers in that world who understand how the law works and understand how bad this is. And, and you know, people who are in the legal profession, you know, um, anybody that's worked in criminal justice or, um, you know, police officers and so forth, they know that like false accusations happen a lot, you know. So they're more, they're more aware of this and they're, and they're more concerned uh, with the checks and balances, you know, and and, and, you know, it's a trade-off, right? There's no perfect situation. Like, they understand that, like, you got to let some guilty people go free in order to protect the innocent people from having their lives destroyed by false accusations, you know? And that's a trade-off. Like, people think that, like, the presumption of innocence is just a legal term. They're like, it's such a cop-out. It's a moral stance, you know? <laughs> it's not a, le- you know, you could say it's a legal term because you don't want to deal with it because you want to take an immoral position, but it's it, it, there's a moral prerogative to not destroy an innocent person's lives with false accusations, even if it means that a certain number of guilty people will go free because you favor you know, you have to always favor the accused. You know, Stephen, what did you learn from this saga? Uh, well, I learned a lot of bad things. Mostly, you know, I kind of like you know, I, uh, I was always really. Um, just an extremely trusting person, you know what I mean? And so I really lost that, you know, like I don't trust people the same way. And, um, you know, kind of, you know, faith in people and so forth. So, uh, yeah, I don't know, you know, like, uh, I, I don't, I don't regret doing it. I mean, there's no version of me that doesn't file the lawsuit. The lawsuit was the right Mm -hmm. thing to do and I'm glad I did it, but it was a sacrifice, you know, also, you know, and I knew that I knew it would be, Maybe you got some awareness about um, the literary community and I mean, it was sort of unmasked for you, wasn't it? Uh, Maybe. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. I mean, like, I think there's a thing in the literary community that I was also guilty of where, you know, as you're an artist and you create this art uh, as opposed instead of instead of becoming lovable, you know, it's like, here's a reason to love me other than me being a person deserving of love, you know? Uh, I mean, the literary community, it's interesting because like the sex work community, 
which I know a lot of people in the sex work community, especially in the BDSM community. And a lot of those people turned on me, but a lot of them didn't, right? There was a, and publicly, they publicly supported me. There was a, there was a diversity of opinion in that, mm-hmm. in that world. And I realized like, wow, the sex worker community has so much more integrity than the literary community. Like, like, you know, the literary, like not a single person in the literary community publicly supported me. You know, I mean, you know, you can see. Now, do, am I wrong? I thought Cheryl Strayed did a little bit. You know, a little bit. I had a small, I did have some problem with her statements because they were false and she knew they were false. I'd given her information. So she said some things knowing that they were false. Like she said that the list was never meant to be public. And that gave cover to a lot of people. And I, I had offered her proof to the contrary of that. I had, I had strong evidence that the list was always meant to be public and that Moyer was constantly promoting it. You know, and she didn't want that. She didn't want that, that information. And she made that assertion. And that bothered me a lot, you know, but on, on, you know, on, uh, you know, in comparison, yeah, Cheryl's probably the good person out of it, you know, and, yeah. and, and that was, um, you know, and she, she was stronger than most for sure. Yeah. But, but Moya, I mean, that, that community, like the way they speak with one voice and the lack of diversity of opinion, I mean, it's just like, it's really the worst people in the world, really, you know, and, and it makes you like not want to be part of a community like that, you know, because you think that the writing world is like where you go, where mm-hmm. people have strong opinions are, and, are, and are brave, because that's when you think back to like Hunter Thompson and Norman Mailer and these monstrous people, but who were monstrous, but they were brave and they did all these great things, you know, and Joan Didion and, and, and um, you know, and so forth. And um, but it's not true. You know, it's literally just it's literally just the smallest, worst people you can imagine. Like, of course, there's exceptions, you know, but uh but on, but on, on percentage, on, on balance, percentage-wise, you know, um, you, so, you'd, have, you'd be hard-pressed to find the worst group. I, my feet are very firmly planted in, in journalistic world. But occasionally, you know, I'll dip a foot into literary world. And there is no comparison about, like, who I want to hang out with. It's like journalistic world, as I think Sarah once said, do you have a problem with someone? You take it to the bar. I mean, mm-hmm. that's changed a little bit mm-hmm. in the past couple of years. But it's like... This kind of palace intrigue, constant, mm, yeah, dirty fishbowl, yeah. it just doesn't happen in journalistic world because you got to get your work done. But the exception to the rule, of course, is our dear friend, Nick Flynn. I know, is, I know. And he hates when I make fun of poets all the time. <laughs> you should keep making fun of poets, though. He can just yeah. be the exception. He's, he's, like, he's, so, he's so mad about it. He's like, why are you always doing it? And I, 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 you know, and it's been going on for years now. And I'm like, I don't know, Nick. I can't, I can't I stop. Can't help, I can't help it. They make me do it, Nick. Um, yeah. Okay, I think we're good, Sarah. What do you think? Shall we I, let? I, I have go one on more. I have one more question. All right. Well, it's that knowing that this was going to drop on International Women's Day, I'm just wondering why you didn't wear a pink latex dress. You know, it's in the closet. You know, it didn't, it didn't, it didn't seem appropriate. You know, I'll, I'll wear it some point this week. Maybe you could share a picture of yourself in that dress that we could include in the episode notes. In the show notes. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's on Instagram. But I'll send it to you. Okay. Stephen, thank you so much. I love seeing you, and I'll see you in person soon. Yeah, Stephen, so. you got balls of steel, and and that actually may be literally true, um, given you know your your history. I, I just I'm so impressed with what you you did here. It, it's I think what you did um, will make a difference in these cases. For Thanks, sure, I appreciate it. Okay, right. bye, Sarah. Sarah, that was. Pretty amazing, huh? Oof, that's so intense. The stuff about the friendships cratering. That's the stuff that just, that's, it hits me in my heart. It hits me in my heart. And I don't know, you know, I know we know a lot of people in common. And one thing I want to say, and, and we just didn't have time to go into it, and it's not even right to go into it, but like, I think Stephen would agree that a lot of those people are known as like really wonderful, great people, like open hearted very caring people. And I think one of the things that's happened in this whole mess is that a lot of caring people have misunderstood, you know, that they, this is, maybe it's just a personal disagreement, but like they think that the right thing to do is to turn on people when I think the right thing to do is to keep opening your heart and, you know, to, to people. I don't understand why conversations weren't had when literature and communication is the art that you work in. I wonder if 
people that are sort of known to be sort of big personalities, you know, whether it's on Twitter or just in other literary community avenues and outlets, if that um, sort of openness, if the corollary to that is they want to, I'm not saying they cynically want to keep their position as an open person and a person that is touching many people, but they just continue to have the thrust to do that so that when one of these things happen, as opposed to like kind of going small and protecting your peeps or your guy, mm-hmm. you continue to say, well, I'm, I'm here. I have this position on the stage. I will, um, I will do what I think the audience needs. And in I that, that's right. And that moment in 2017, 2018, 2019, it was me too. And then it kind of rolled over into 2020. It was more, you know, uh, George Floyd and equity and that stuff. You're just going to continue to make sure that you're giving the the audience what you believe they're really calling for. And so maybe that's what what happened here. Yeah, I think that's a that's a good way to say that. And uh you know, I also think that that you know, Stephen is a complicated person. Definitely. I'm sure that he has very complicated relationships with each of these different people. The last time he was on the show, um he spoke, you know, pretty openly about a piece that had come out in Tin House a few years before this by the author Claire V. Watkins. Um and it's called On Pandering. And she talks about her discomfort that she had with him uh, wanting to sleep in bed with her. And, and you know, I really think the, uh, the, the problem she had was that she didn't feel Stephen um, respected her as a writer. He, he, when he talked about that in our last episode, you know, he said that he, you know, he didn't have a problem with that piece. He thought it was a little bit of an ungenerous interpretation. In other, you know, in other words, he might have told it differently, but that, um, you know, but that piece had made a big splash in 2015. I knew about it. It was given as, it ran in Tin House and it was given as a speech somewhere. And, you know, it really made a big deal. Claire Bay Watkins is a really interesting character. She wrote um, a short story collection. I think it's called Battleborn. Um, but, you know, I have to say, at the risk of sounding like um real armchair therapist, what's my name? Daughter of an armchair therapist. Armchair daughter of a therapist. That's right. That's what it is. Um, you know, a lot of times when I read these stories that are like sort of like speaking truth to power and injustice and patriarchy, and I, I wonder about that person's relationship with their father. Almost always. Hmm. Uh, I wonder if the people, the person that didn't let them speak, the person that they're trying to punch back at is a father figure or some authority figure. And that if the patriarchy writ large doesn't become sort of like the carrier host for their familial interpersonal dynamics. And one of the interesting things about Claire Vey Watkins, do you happen to know who her father is? No. Tex Watkins from the Charles Manson uh, case. I don't know who I don't know who that is. I know who Charles uh, Charles Manson is, of course. I don't know who Tex Watkins is. Tex Watkins was part of the Manson family. He was one of the masterminds of the murders. And if you read Helter Skelter, it certainly gave me the impression that Tex Watkins did most of the violence. You know, there were several women involved in that case, but Tex is the one that um, that perpetrates most of it. And Claire is his daughter. And I can't, I, I, you know, I, I think. Tex Watkins is now goes by his real name, which is something like Paul or something. And, you know, he's reformed. He has converted. You know, that that story, I'm sure, is deep and rich and fascinating, contains far more than the the things he did when he was on a lot of drugs and under the influence of somebody who was a sociopath. And, um, you know, I don't doubt that uh, there is more to that story, but I just got to say wow, my money's going to be on complicated father-daughter relationship. All right. Well, I'll give my, uh, since I never do the armchair therapy thing, I will say, and just let's say in relation to the shitty media men list and, and other things where we've seen these sort of anonymous piled ons, I, I see it more, or in this case more, as um, wanting to fit in at the cool lunch girls table in high school. 
It's like one one person says this. It's like, oh, she's getting she's getting this sunshine. It's a big thing at the moment. I I'm going to get in there too. And some of these things may be true. Some of them may be amplified. Some of them may be completely fabricated. But it's not. It's wanting to sit at that lunch table and getting yourself on that list. The New York Magazine article, I believe, it was last November, talking about the case Stephen's case against Moira. <clears throat> at the very beginning of the women's state anonymous, but they, one woman I remember saying it was like the best night of her life um, or something like that. The, the, the excitement of being part of this moment, which it was just like almost epiphanic and physical that you could be part of this. And I, I don't really, I'm not going to put that anywhere near the patriarchy. I'm going to put that on women's desire sometimes to just be part of this thing that they that makes them feel strong. So. Well, I'm going to have to issue an immediate apology on a mistake that I made. Certainly. Uh, I have conflated two people in the Manson family. One <laughs> was Tech Wa- Tex Watson and one oh. was Paul Watkins. And Claire... Claire Vay Watkins' father is Paul Watkins, who was Charles Manson's right-hand man. She wrote a story about it in The Guardian, which we'll link in the show notes. But he is not to be confused with Tex Watson, all of which what I described about him is correct, but uh, he is not her father. Still, um, my, my points about this remain yeah, I mean, I think it's look. I think it's a combination of both these things. I think um, I also think that uh, we're all status seeking creatures, and mm-hmm. it's one of the reasons why I miss Tom Wolf so much, because Tom Wolf really understood, you know, human behavior to be status. You know, the the best way to look at American culture in particular was through the lens of status, and he wrote uniquely penetrating books. I'm thinking particularly of The Bonfire of the Vanities, but I also like A Man in Full. And frankly, I also like I Am Charlotte Simmons, which was a kind of reviled book that he wrote, but it was about college culture. And I think it's kind of brilliant. Um, he he was the first to kind of coin hooking up. Not He did, by the way, Tom Wolfe did not coin the term hooking up. He was just the first to bring it to my attention. He wrote a collection of essays called Hooking Up. And I was like, what's that term? And, you know, he had college kids. And so he knew that was a phrase that was going on. Anyway, um, you know, I miss him because I think that he, you know, he and Christopher Hitchens and David Foster Wallace and, you know, a lot of these writers that were so good on American culture and we've lost them, they would be so good. Oh, they would be so useful right now. Yes. (laughs) We need them and they're gone. And so we have to carry on their torch the best we can. Speaking of uh, Tom Wolfe, so Eli Lake, who's got a great, a great podcast. Um, he has an episode that came out a couple of days ago called John Lennon, L-E-N-I-N, talking about when uh, Beatle John Lennon um, kind of got involved with Black Panthers and other sort of revolutionary stuff. Anyway, uh, Eli always gives this unbelievably amazing and astute and learned um, introduction where there's all kinds of uh, sound clips and he does talk a lot about Tom Wolfe. So we will put a oh, link. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah. We will put, put a link in there because it's absolutely brilliant. And then the, the guest, so he talks for about 45 minutes or an hour and then uh, Nick Gillespie of Reason Magazine comes in and they they start talking more about it. It is a really, really uh, terrific episode. Uh, Eli's podcast is called, um, I think it's believe it's called The Reeducation with Eli Lake and it's it's really worth a listen. Yeah, it's great. I've only listened to it once with Michael Moynihan, but when I did, I was like, oh my God, I want to listen to this again. That that yeah. episode was about Christopher Hitchens. Yep. You know, I think I'm, people don't talk enough about Tom Wolfe. So I'm very excited to listen to that. Nancy, I know we have other subjects, but I have to go yep. to the bathroom. Will you read, will you sing a song to our listeners while I go to the bathroom? I am going to sing a song or I'm actually going to read something if that's okay. If I, I have to read something because something happened, Sarah, I think it's called Chat GPT. Oh my goodness. No, I can't go to the bathroom while you do this. Okay, so I'll just I'll just tell a little story. You go you go use the bathroom. That's how okay. we roll. That's okay. how we roll. I'll be here. right back. Okay, that's hey, how Nancy. We- 
Yes. What's the name of this podcast? The name of this podcast is Smoke Them If You Got Them Unless You Have to Go to the Bathroom. Okay. There you go. So what I will do while Sarah is hitting the loo is I am going to give a big thank you. First of all, we thank you always to our paid subscribers. We love you. We love you a little more than the free subscribers. Um, I'm going to thank you guys so much for coming on the Zoom last night, which was because we're taping this on a Monday morning. We Zoomed. We Zoomed the uh, first Sunday of every month. I thought it was really good last night. Um, it was a nice, I don't know how many people were there, about 24 people. And we we heard some we heard some people's stories. We heard about um, moving from San Francisco to Austin, Texas. Um, we just we just talked about a lot of stuff. There's really, really a nice intimacy. So if you're listening to this and you're not yet a paid subscriber, that's one of the super fun things that we give you as a bonus. You get to come hang out with Sarah and me and our other lovely subscribers every first Sunday of the month. You also get um Sarah's uh, smoking diaries, those drop on Friday evenings. And also on Sunday mornings, I give you pie talk where I give you a little story and also a recipe. I just thanked our Zoom listeners uh, and encouraged people to become subscribers. So shall we start the next part of this episode, the paid part of this episode with me on, on what's it called? Snap, Snap GPT? Yeah. One of our Wonderful listeners, Jessamy, um, put in the comments section that she had, you know, a lot of people are playing around with chat GPT right now. Um, there's Hello, Smoke We've Got Them listeners. If you are hearing this, that means you have just listened to the free portion of our, oh, I don't know, biweekly episodes with Sarah Heppla. Sarah Heppla, who's just so busy right now, she could not record this little uh interim moment for you. Um, we're happy to have you here as a free subscriber. If you'd like the entire episodes, please go over to smokeempodcast.substack.com and sign up and subscribe. Then you will get the full episodes every week, plus some special things we drop for you on the weekends and our monthly, our first Sunday Zooms. Again, to get the full fig, that is smokeempodcast.substack.com. Thanks. <laughs> 